1 Corinthians 13 is one of the most familiar passages in the New Testament. If you've ever been to a wedding, you've probably heard it. In fact, you've probably heard it at just about every wedding you've ever been to, right? We call it the, the love chapter. And I've titled the message this morning, Love, the More Excellent Way, which is probably different than what you saw if you looked at the bulletin this morning. Uh, I changed the title just a little bit, but it's reflective of what Paul says here. Love, the more excellent way. So if you were here two weeks ago, you remember that Joey walked us through chapter 12, right before this, in which Paul instructs the Corinthian church to value the diversity of their spiritual gifts. He, he talks about how we have different gifts, and he, that we're, that's where we get the analogy of the, the human body in there. And he says, this diversity of your gifts is actually necessary for the sake of your unity, for your oneness as the body of Christ. If you remember all that we've been talking about, the Corinthians, they've, they've had lots of issues, and, and here we see something very similar to that, ever true to their sinful tendencies towards one-upmanship and comparison and competition with one another to, to, to see who's got the most elite status, something that was very culturally informed for them. They were using that same mindset to apparently value certain spiritual gifts in the body, what they might call what Paul refers to as the, the higher gifts. They wanted those gifts, they valued those gifts, and, and as a result, then they would look down on what would be called maybe some of the lesser spiritual gifts. So they were using even the gifts of God to find a place for division and comparison. Chapter 12, where Joey started off, opens up this three chapters long discussion on spiritual gifts in the church. And the point of Paul's opening argument is to direct the church towards the Trinitarian image that they are meant to bear, that we are meant to reflect. Like the Trinity, there is perfect unity, although different roles. And so Paul says, look, this is what we're supposed to, 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 to image as we gather together and we use our spiritual gifts in the body. Look back at chapter 12, verse 4. He says, there are variety, varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. You see the Trinitarian language there, and he's calling us to emulate that. And again, Paul uses the analogy of the human body to show that every single part is needed in order to be healthy. Right? Hands need feet and, and ears need eyes and so forth. If, if, if you don't have all of the parts functioning together, the body isn't functioning as it was meant to. It's not perfectly healthy. And just as the body is made up of, you know, remember the old song, if you learned it like I did as a kid, head, shoulders, knees and toes, knees and toes, right? Well, the, the church likewise is made up of Fred's, Sheila's, Bree's and Joe's, Bree's and Joe's, right? <laughs> Yeah, I spent, I spent more than a minute thinking about that this week. Each one of us, whether you're a Fred, Sheila, Bree, or a Joe, right? Each one of us has a gift to contribute. 
And that's what Paul's trying to get us to understand. He also takes some time to list a few of the spiritual gifts by name that make up a healthy church body. Again, not a comprehensive list, but he lists a few of them here. Also to re-emphasize that there is a diversity of the gifts. Look again at chapter 12, verse 27. He says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. And then he says, are, are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess the gifts of healing? These are all meant to be rhetorically answered no, right? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? There's a diversity in the body. Now, when you, you think about that, okay, we all have gifts. We all have a different part to play. We're all important. There's certainly this variety of gifts out there. It begs the question, oh, well, what gifts do I have, right? Maybe that's what you're asking. Which gifts do I possess? And I, I think that's a very important question. And there are ways in which those things can be discerned and evidenced in the church. But, but I, I want to offer to you that I think there's a more fundamentally important question than what gifts do you have? And, the, and I think that's what chapters 13 and 14 will demonstrate. There's something at least equally, if not more important, for us to consider. And here's what they are, two things. The first one is that spiritual gifts are not always fixed. So we spend a lot of time trying to figure out what our spiritual gifts are. And I think that there's evidence here to suggest that our spiritual gifts are not always fixed. Now, I say not always. There are certainly gifts that seem to be consistent in certain people's lives. So, you know, I'm a pastor. I get up here and I preach every week. The church has affirmed that I have a teaching gift. That's a pretty consistent gift, right? And some of you have very consistent gifts. But at the same time, there are gifts that God, I think, gives to us in moments when they need to be employed. Maybe it's a gift that you don't consistently demonstrate, but in a particular moment, he gives it to you for the sake of ministry, for the sake of building up the church, for the sake of his glory. And there's, there's a sense in which we can pray for and pursue additional or certain kinds of gifts. Look at the end of chapter 12, verse 31. He says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. That to me indicates that, that gifts are somewhat fluid and can be desired and prayed for and given in different times. That's, that's the first thing. So don't always be so focused on what am I and limit yourself into a box Focus on, God, what can you do through me? And ask him for it. Secondly, how we employ our gifts is as important or more important than what gifts we actually employ. Look at the last half of verse 31 in chapter 12. He says, earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. There's something more excellent than just the gifts that you have. What is it? Well, that's what chapter 13 is about. The more excellent way is the way of love. How we use our gifts is as important or more important than the gifts we actually use. Let's read the chapter 13. 
He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Three points to today's passage. The first one is this. No matter what you say, no matter what you know, no matter what you do, it is nothing without love. No matter what you say, no matter what you know, and no matter what you do, it is nothing without love. Impressive speaking gifts are nothing apart from love. Verse 1, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, there's a, there's a very uh, sort of mysterious statement in that opening verse, the tongues of men and angels. What does that all mean? And I want to say for this morning, don't worry about that yet. We'll get to that next week when we talk about it a little bit more in chapter 14. But here's the point. The point is that the Corinthians really valued eloquent speech, right? They really valued this sort of uh, a, a clear and polished and authoritative oratory. That was how status was earned. They valued that. Paul's basically saying, me, not so much. Apart from love, it doesn't matter how polished you are. It doesn't matter how authoritative or clear you are. You just sound like noise. You're annoying. <laughs> it's a worthless sound. Secondly, great knowledge and ministry skills or ministry success, apart from love, makes me nothing. Verse 2, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. Thirdly, sacrificial, generous ministry, even to the point of martyrdom, without love, gains nothing. That's what verse 3 says. 
If I give away all that I have, I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. These are intentionally shocking statements that Paul's making here. He's using quite a bit of hyperbole here, right? He's saying, look, you can have all the, all the verbal power and all the verbal clarity, not only of the greatest human beings out there, but even of supernatural beings. But without love, nothing. You can have not just some knowledge or understand some mysteries, you can understand all of them. <laughs> Who does that? Nobody, right? Hyperbole, you can know it all. But apart from love, nothing. You could not only be generous, you could give every single thing you own away, even your life. But if you lack love, you gain nothing. Why the, why the hyperbole? I think it's to make his point that people are capable of doing all sorts of things that can appear on the outside to be very godly, very, very powerful. They can appear to have a spiritual power and spiritual motives, but if they lack love, the reality is it's just counterfeit. It's counterfeit ministry. It's, it's, it's just for show. You say, but listen, aren't these legitimate spiritual gifts? These are spiritual gifts that, that Paul is talking about. Is it, is it possible to have a spiritual gift? meaning a gift from God. Is it possible to have something given to us from God and still not somehow exhibit genuine godly love in your life? Now, I've thought about this a lot, and I think the answer is yes. You can have something that's from God and lack love. Gifts can be misused, Gifts can be abused and still be legitimate gifts. Paul's not saying that the gifts are nothing here. He's saying that, no, if, if you use them apart from love, you become nothing. You gain nothing. Those of you who are aware of the recent uh, scandal around Ravi Zacharias, let me ask you this. How do you feel about his life and ministry now? If you're not familiar with him, he was probably the most famous Christian apologist in the world. Speaking to, to packed out auditoriums and stadiums around the globe, writing best-selling books, defending the, the legitimacy, the inerrancy of the Bible, defending the divinity of Jesus Christ. Very good at that. Very well known for that. But after he died last year, it came out that he was a serial sexual predator. A manipulator who had abused vulnerable women, not just once or for a short period of time, but over decades. Ravi certainly spoke eloquently. He certainly displayed incredible knowledge of the things of God. He probably acted generously and sacrificially at times. But again, do you think anything of his ministry now? Now, when I say that, does that invalidate the saving faith of the thousands of people who came to Christ through his work over the years? 
Does it nullify the encouragement that many Christians received from his defense of the Bible? No. No. But unfortunately for Ravi, it's possible, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not here to judge the ultimate state of his heart, but all of that might be burned up on the judgment day for him. Standing before God, counting towards him as nothing. And even though God can use those gifts to bless the church, and I think he did, there's no doubt that Ravi himself stained the church and damaged its health and damaged its reputation. He deeply wounded some of its precious members, and that is a horrible tragedy. See, a grateful recipient of a gift from God, a grateful recipient expresses that gratitude in love. A love for God. A a love then for other people. And love is not a feeling. That expression of love is not a feeling. It's an act of the will. Love is a verb. You have to choose to love. We have to choose to love. And when we do, when we do, I think what Paul's saying here is the gifts of God take on a level of spiritual power that is truly supernatural. That's when gifts show up from heaven. That's when they infiltrate the church. That's when the common good is brought about that can only be explained by God's grace. And we participate in that by choosing to love. You know, anyone with enough material wealth can be generous when they want to be. And that's a good thing, but there's not necessarily anything supernatural about that. However, when that same person, or perhaps the person who's living paycheck to paycheck, is motivated by a genuine love, and then gives what they have for the sake of the brother or sister in Christ who needs a helping hand, that's when God supplies. That's when power appears. Yeah, I've been told that an atheist could could do my job. I would think about that. Is that true? Could an atheist get up and, and, and preach a message from Scripture Maybe, maybe an atheist could read the Bible and get a decent enough grasp on the author's original intent to be able to craft a fairly accurate and maybe even a compelling message from it, right? Maybe. But what Paul's trying to say is, look, when, when the skillful teacher studies diligently and prays over his or her Bible because they love the church, They love the church and they earnestly desire for the Holy Spirit to use this effort and this work to bless the body of Christ. That's when God supplies. That's when power appears on a Sunday morning or in a midweek Bible study. That's Paul's point. When we pursue love, when we really genuinely seek to use our spiritual gifts to share that love, 
That's how I want to love you in part is, is by using these gifts to, to show you love. That's when the gifts that God gives are amplified in the church. That's when the church is built up, not just in a, in a human way, but in a supernatural way. And I believe, as I said before, that gifts that we didn't already have suddenly can be given to us to use for the good of the body because God loves to fill those who love him and who love others with a supernatural power. A power that they may not have even had before. So, do you want greater spiritual gifts? If you do, press in to love. Press in to love. And the Spirit and His gifts will be given to you in greater measure than I think we could ever possibly have imagined. Press into love. That's what He's saying. So the, the question then is, well, how do we do that? What does love look like? Well, that's the next thing he wants to show us. That's the second point, the way of love. And the way he phrases this with lots of negatives, we'll say it this way. It's the way of love and the way of not love that he wants to explain for us, verses four to seven. Well, I said before that love is a verb. When we look at these verses and you look at them in the original Greek language, the description of love that he gives here and the way that he, he uses these descriptors, all of them are written as verbs. So he proves the point that I was trying to make. Love for Paul is a verb. It's an action. So look at verse 4. He doesn't just say that love produces patient and kind feelings, but that it acts patiently, that it does acts of kindness. In other words, love is only love when it acts. So let's read the rest of the verses, verses 4 to 7 here. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I think to help us better understand how love works itself out in action, it, it, it might be useful to apply these descriptions of love to some of the gifts that he's already, he's already talked about at the end of chapter 12. Let's take certain gifts, throw them into the mix here, and see how it would play out. Again, looking at the gifts in chapter 12, verses 28 to 30. So Paul says here in verse 4, love is patient and kind. Let's say I have the gift of helping. Okay? You ever tried to help someone who constantly tests your patience? Maybe they keep failing, trying to help them, and they just they fall back, and they fall back, they fall back. Maybe you give them counsel, and they keep forgetting it. Again, falling back into familiar, unprofitable patterns. Or maybe in trying to help them, you find that they shun your help because of pride or some resentment that they need help at all. What could you do in a situation like that? Well, it would be really easy to sort of throw up your hands and get angry and be like, why am I bothering? Why am I bothering to help you at all when you're clearly not very deserving of my help? You're constantly offending me, in fact. <laughs> but patience literally means this. It means being long-tempered. 
Kindness is graciousness. If I really love you, if I'm really seeking your best interest, as Paul talks about earlier in the letter here, I am willing to suffer a wrong in order to see you spiritually grow, in order to see you have spiritual success, regardless of what it costs me. I can't really help you without genuine love for you. Paul says, love does not envy or boast. Let's say someone has the gift of giving, or the gift of generosity, and someone else in the church is in need. There is an opportunity right there for envy and boasting, right? Somebody has, somebody needs, and they're going to come together and sort of like get into the weeds with each other. It might be easy for the one person to say, you know, you know, John wouldn't have been able to pay his rent this month if I hadn't stepped in. What would he ever do without me, right? Or someone in need might say, you know, I, I know Jane gives a lot of her time and money to help the church, but I could too if I had what she had. I mean, do you see the clothes that she wears? And you see that really nice house that she lives in? Ah, makes me so jealous, right? Love is not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. What if you have the gift of administration? Fine, I'll lead this ministry, but we are going to do it my way. We're going to do it my way. These volunteers, oh my goodness, they are so disorganized. There's this one that constantly brings their own material in to this teach the kids class, veering off of the curriculum that I put together, and it drives me crazy. You know, ministry would be a lot easier if you didn't have to deal with other people's ideas. <laughs> By the way, do you know what, what rudeness communicates? It is so dehumanizing. Rudeness. When we're rude to other people, we're almost always saying, I care more about this thing that annoys me right now than I care about our relationship. I care more about my expectations than I care about you. That's what rudeness says. The only love in that is self-love. And that's not Christian love at all. So Paul continues with this sort of not love descriptions. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices in the truth. If I have the, the gift of teaching, I could easily rejoice at wrongdoing. You know, pastors and teachers are often privy to a lot of the sins that, that other people struggle with in the church because other people will often come to them to seek counsel or to seek answers. But if I don't love you, I could easily use what you shared with me, perhaps your wrongdoing, against you. I could exploit my knowledge of your sin. Or I could feel superior to you. And then what happens to me? That causes me to rejoice now in my wrongdoing, right? But Paul says, no, to rejoice in the truth. To rejoice in the truth is to rejoice in God's truth. 
to rejoice in the freeing and sanctifying power of the gospel that forgives us, that washes us through the blood of Jesus. If I love you, I want to I bear your burdens, right? I want to lighten your load with the love of God that is available to you through the power of the cross and through the power of the resurrection. That's what it means to rejoice in what's true. See, Paul's just defined love by using several examples, again, of what we might call not love. He uses the negative terms here. And the point is that love is the inverse of these things. If you're to restate these verses in all positive terms, we could perhaps say it like this. Love is patient and kind. Love is humble and rejoices in another's blessings. It's encouraging desiring that others' needs be put first. Love is gracious, and it celebrates the victories in others' lives. It always seeks to live in light of the truths of the gospel that build up the church for the good of all and the glory of God. That would be a positive restatement of those verses. Verse 7 again, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. There's a common thread there. It's the word all. Bears, endures, believes. Love desires all to flourish. And it does so because it recognizes that we are united together in Christ. When you flourish, I flourish. Right? When we grow, we grow. Remember that movie Backdraft? I love, there's, there's this uh, one scene in the movie, it actually comes up a couple times, where, where one fireman is about to fall into the fire, and the other fireman grabs his arm, and, 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 the, and the guy who's hanging is like, just let me go, just let me go, basically save yourself, and the fireman says, no, you go, we go. I love that. I, that, that ought to be a motto for us in the church, right? You go, we go. Look at verse 26 again of chapter 12. That's what Paul is saying here too, right? If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. You go, we go. That's how love expresses itself in the church. And if you want to know what love looks like in practice, you simply need to look to the love of God displayed in Jesus. Rachel read from 1 John chapter 4. Let me, let me go back and look at some of those verses again. Listen, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, right? God acted. We didn't deserve it, right? It wasn't a feeling. God didn't feel like loving us, not, not, not at least because of anything that we did to merit a feeling like that. He acted. He pursued. He gave. And John says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. One more time. I want to go back over verses 4 to 7, but replace every occurrence of the word love with the name of Jesus. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. He's not arrogant or rude. 
He does not insist on his own way. He's not irritable or resentful. Jesus does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things. He believes all things. He hopes all things. He endures all things. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So Paul talks about no matter what you say or do or know, if you do it without love, it's nothing. This is what love looks like, and this is what it doesn't look like. Finally, he's going to end with this. Love is the greatest pursuit because its power never ends. It's the greatest pursuit because, in other words, it's the most lasting thing we can pursue. Verses 8 to 12. Love never ends. Many of us have, have heard that uh, love never fails. Some translations say that, and that's why it gets read at weddings all the time, right? Love never fails. But, but, but what, what, what he means here is that it's, a, it's, a, it's an eternity, eternal thing. It never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. These higher gifts that you're pursuing are temporary gifts. They're great gifts. Paul affirms that they are high gifts, prophecy, tongues, knowledge, important, good things, but they have a shelf life. They're not going to last forever. Why? Verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. What is the perfect? What's he talking about here? He's talking about the return of Christ. He's talking about the day in which we are face-to-face with the Lord Jesus Christ, when, when our faith is made sight, right? The perfect will come, and when it comes, we won't need prophecy anymore, right? We won't, ha- we won't need the partial knowledge that we're able to impart to one another because we'll have all knowledge at that point. We'll see it all. We'll know it all. We'll experience all of it. These things have a purpose in the temporary church, not in the eternal church, Which is why he says, look, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. He's saying that there's a maturity that takes place where the things that you used to do, you don't do anymore. And these spiritual gifts, these, even these higher gifts, he's saying there'll be a day when we, we don't need to do them anymore. We will reach maturity. Now we see in a mirror dimly, then face to face. Now we know in part, then we shall know fully, even as we have been fully known. And so he says, now faith, hope, and love abide. Now you have these three big things, faith, hope, love, faith will become sight. Hope will be realized. Love will continue. And therefore he can say, the greatest of these is love. So I want to just land the plane here with some simple application. Brothers and sisters, church, we're learning about spiritual gifts. We started that in chapter 12. We're going to continue on in chapter 14 with a little bit more detailed look at gifts, how they function in the church. As we do that, 
And even as we're encouraged to desire greater gifts, know that he puts this chapter in the middle as this really important anchor to say, no matter where we go in this discussion, first remember how to use them. Not just what you have, but how to use them. It's every bit as important as the gifts themselves. You need to be a church that pursues love. So I want to ask us to evaluate ourselves in this regard. How are we doing when it comes to love? Are we a loving church? Are we a a loving people? Do we see one another as objects of affection? I hope so. And I, I want to encourage us, as Paul does, to grow in that, to pursue that. If you're looking to increase your love, For the brothers and sisters around you in the church, I want to offer two practical suggestions. The first one is rooted in something that I think Paul's been pointing to this whole time through the book of 1 Corinthians. It's remember who you are, right? Remember who you are. Remember your identity as the family of God. And therefore, treat one another like family. Now, we all have families, and, and, and our families, you know, some of our families are, are, are more enjoyable than others, some of our experiences more healthy than others. But I, I want us to consider, even if we have a difficult family experience, I think there's something that we can all commonly share. If you have siblings, you know that there's this sort of inherent love that you have for them, Right? Again, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take into account that some of you love your siblings more than others love your siblings. But, but there's an inherent love that we have for our natural siblings. And, and you say, why is that? I didn't pick this person, right? I was born into this. They, they were chosen for me, right? Why is it that I love them, excuse me, like I do? And I think there's two reasons why. There's a bond of blood, and there's a bond of shared experience, right? And, and what, what the New Testament constantly points us to is that the church family, the church family has an even deeper bond than our natural families. And I think you could say that this, those same two bonds are there. There's a bond of blood and a bond of shared experience. The bond of blood is demonstrated through something like the communion table. We have a bond of unity through the blood of Jesus Christ. We're not just blood brothers and sisters because of shared parents or shared family trees. We have a We have a blood bond through Jesus' blood shed for us that purchases us and adopts us into a family that is unbreakable and eternal. And in, in Mark chapter 10, verse 29, Jesus is talking to his disciples about some of you are going to have to leave your families in order to follow me. Some of of your families are going to get divided because you follow me. However, he points them to the church as the 100-fold gain of family for those who have followed Jesus. 
The bond that we have through the blood of Jesus is the strongest bond there is. And if you remember who you are, and we remember our common position as brothers and sisters in Christ, and we truly live in accordance with that remembrance, we're going to love each other because we really are siblings. However, there also has to be a shared experience, and that shared experience increases our love. So the second practical thing beyond remembering who you are is invest in one another relationally. Invest. That, that, that's an action, right? That's a purposeful thing. Do something. Invest in one another relationally because love grows out of genuine relationship. This is where the shared experience comes into play. I want, I want to go back for a second to the whole Ravi Zacharias thing because I brought that up earlier and I, I, want, to, I want to just offer to you perhaps an explanation of what, what might have gone wrong in his life. Somebody asked me earlier this week, you know, how do, how do we deal with this? How do we reckon with, with this, this leader in the church who, who had such a, a fall? And of course, we see that happening over and over and over again, right? And as I had that conversation with this person, you know, I, I said, you know, something comes to mind I think is really important that we have to take notice of. Everything that I've read and heard about Ravi Zacharias's life indicates that he did not have a church. Think about that. He was in churches all the time. He was traveling around and, and sort of by, by means of being, you know, in the spotlight and invited in to speak, he was, you know, he was given this position as being a part of the church, Big C, but where was the relationship and accountability that comes from being in an actual family? I don't think he had that. And so we're reminded, like the, there's something tangible about investing in actual relationships that causes us to grow and to use our gifts in love. Because we know one another. We experience life with one another. That increases, our, that increases our, our capacity for care because we actually are invested in what's going on in each other's lives. You're not just some face in a crowd. You're my, you're my sister. You're my brother. So practical, practical application here is invest relationally in the church and maybe a great way in order to encourage you to do that is to look at things like the essential groups that we've started up again recently. You know, you can invest relationally to some extent coming on a Sunday morning, but when you get into each other's living rooms, whether it's in real life or in Zoom, right, and you're hearing like, how's, how's my life going? How can I be praying for you? What are, the, what are the good things that God's doing in my life? What are the challenges that I'm experiencing right now? And you're, and you're sharing those things and you're bearing those burdens together and you're hearing relationally. That just, that's, that sparks love because we're now sharing experience in that bond of blood. 
And so I want to encourage us that way. Remember who we are as the family of God. Truly treat one another like family and do that by investing in one another relationally. John 13, I'll close with this. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You're also to love one another. And he says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If we really want to be disciples of Jesus, if we really want to be seen by Jesus and by the world as legitimate in our claim to be disciples of Jesus, then we've got to pursue love. So Lord, I pray that you'd help us in this regard. Lord, I thank you for the love that you, that you show to us here at Edgewater. I thank you that, that we, we believe in your love shown to us through your son Jesus and his being sent for us and saving us, his death for us and resurrection. And I pray and, and give thanks to you for the, the fruit that's evident, that that, that kind of love is, is spurring us to love one another. But Lord, we, we would not pretend to believe that we love each other enough. We certainly know that, Lord, there are people, even in this congregation, who could say, I don't, I don't experience hardly any love. I don't, I don't have people investing in me and, and knowing me. And there, there are likewise those of us, maybe some of the same people, who could say, I'm not investing in others enough. And knowing them. And So, Lord, help us. Help us to, to not just expect that love is some feeling that's going to magically appear when all the things align properly, but that it's an action that we must take. And then, Lord, by that kind of love, Lord, fill us with the gifts that you alone can give that will supernaturally infiltrate this church for your glory and our good. So full, Lord, that that the roof bursts off in the fullness of our love an experience of you and one another that pours out even to our community for them to know that's, those, are, those are followers of Jesus. Look at the way they love. Lord, we pray that, that you would produce that in us and we would be faithful to walk in it. Make us a people of love. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.